Welcome everybody back to Beyond the Facade. I'm Doña Junta from Swami Chronicles. Hi, I'm Sabrina from Observing Spooks and Other Vices. Yeah, we're glad to be back and we have an exciting new show today. We will be discussing the Sleepy Lagoon murder and the Zoot Suit riots that happened right after. And the reason for that is because next in, during this week coming up on the 3rd is the 78 year anniversary one memory of the Zoot Suit riots. So we wanted to have a special episode episode to talk about that because the history is kind of still unknown, right? Not only is it unknown, but it's pretty personal, I would say. At least it's, I feel it's personal to me. Um, I would say it's personal to a lot of Mexican-American Chicanos out here, especially in California. I did it. I had heard about it, you know, the, the events kind of through the through time, but never in full detail and it was not until college and because it was so long ago I don't really remember like details like about the events and so I, until I started doing the research again I mean for me personally that's kind of how it started you know doing more research now based on the events that happened but I think it's really important to talk about it for the new generation that maybe has no idea about this for the older generation to kind of remember this this history as well there's a lot about Zoot Suiters that I can relate to. They are Mexican-Americans in this country. A lot of them are children of immigrants. They are neither American and they're not Mexican and they're stuck in the middle. They are trying to make a name and a identity for themselves and their parents they're, they're not like their parents. They can't really relate to their parents. And then they're the American, white America, Anglo-America around them in, in Los Angeles. They can't conform to them either. So there are these outcasts trying to behave in a way that's identifying for them. Yeah, so we'll definitely get into the murder, what led to that murder, and also what led to the Zutsu riot. And just our thoughts of that history now, how we even got to, I guess, this point, not just on, like highlighting the anniversary, but there's other things that came into play that made us know that it was important to bring up this history again, or not even again, just highlight it for, for everybody so we could remember this and keep it present because, you know, history has been repeating itself. I did want to mention that I did read a book, some of the research I did was from a book called Murder at Sleepy Lagoon, and it was by Eduardo Obregón Pagan, and he's a professor in Arizona, I believe, and he has been an expert in researching the history of the, the whole murder and the, the riots. I know Sabrina has seen a, a documentary that, you know, she shared, which that we've been researching all that based on different, you know, sources, but he... Uh, you know, he's kind of a, his book, he gets into really all these details of what was going on. And I really enjoy that about his book. So, you know, what we'll, a lot of it, what we learned has been from, from him and just, you know, some of the other research we've done. Thank you, Professor Lopez, by the yeah, way. Yeah, shout out to I him. Professor Professor yeah, Pagan. Professor Pagan too, but my Professor Lopez right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is personal for us on so many levels. Uh, 
and I won't go too deep into them at this moment, but I had a, a essay I had to write just recently on the Zoot Suit Riots with accumulating issues or accumulating research that we were doing, which had nothing to do with Zoot Suit Riots or anything to do with the Sleepy Lagoon murders. It kind of spurred me into obsession. Yeah. And thank and you for going we'll down this We'll share how that like happened, me. which was very a beautiful type of um, development in your life, right? Oh, definitely a development. We'll start off sharing, just describing the time. So the era of LA, Los Angeles in the 40s. So you want to go ahead and share, what did LA look at like in 1943? I mean, how was it? What was the vibe? Well, the vibe was very Angelino. And what I mean by that is you have this Spanish style Mexican city with Mexican names and Spanish names but white people were the dominant Anglo-Americans, we'll say. Anglo-Americans were the dominant people living there. And you had small little towns that were segregated. Yes, there was segregation in Los Angeles. Barrios. Barrios. Let me roll my R's. I'm trying. So barrios and uh, where there was majority Mexican people. There were other different nationalities there as yeah. well. But the- yeah, yeah. Pagan really brought up that I didn't even realize, honestly, Mm -hmm. you forget how many different nationalities and from different countries, people that were living here. But back to Los Angeles during the 1940s, for perspective and for point of view, Pearl Harbor happened in December 1941. So we're officially at war and during World War II and our troops are in Europe fighting Nazis. A lot of men left to go fight in the war leaving the women to go and man go man and take care of the job of the family at different jobs and where men were were in manufacturing jobs as we needed these manufacturing goods for war wartime efforts there was rationing there were a lot of kids that were taking care of a two-parent family now kind of in the middle because their mom's working in a manufacturer or different company whereas she was a housewife before and now you have dad out out fighting war patriotism we have to support our troops we hear this to this day so you have that going on and then you have this big disconnect you have an influx of immigrant workers uh they are here taking care of the fields and farming Mm -hmm. and doing a lot of the other jobs since a lot of the troops are gone or our men are gone at this point we have the their offspring their children that some of them were born in mexico a lot of them were born here in the united states they're growing up and it's 1942 and they're teenagers stuck in a city stuck in a country where they belong and yet they don't belong their parents are old-fashioned very, very conservative parents you know very conservative for many of them Catholic, very strict, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then you have Anglo-Americans where they're, they're segregated against. They don't fit into either worlds. And I can relate to that on so many levels. They're just teenagers. Think about yourself when you're a teenager. What are you trying to do? You're trying to find your identity. You're trying to find who you are, find the people that you think you belong to. No different for these young Mexican teenagers. Well, not just Mexican. There's all different kinds of nationalities, but majority Mexican teenagers. And they did so by taking on the look of what Pagan calls drapes, 
and we know as you see. And there was already a lot of tension in the air, like in the media about delinquent youth being chaotic and before the murder. So there was already a lot of kind of um, racial tension and things like that that were happening it's, towards the youth. It's funny when you hear stories about the Zoot Suiters, they're walking down the street and they're Zoot Suits or drapes, whichever you prefer to call, but we'll just say Zoot Suits for, for argument's sake here. Uh, they're walking down the streets, 15, 16, and they're zoot suits, and they had the audacity to be cocky next to a white person. And so they're automatically looked at as these bad delinquent kids that are walking around like that. Like, how dare they have the audacity to be walking down the street with that much, you know, sass in their step, if you will. And you can only imagine how many Karens were out there like, oh, my God. Someone called the police. <laughs> I just imagine that in a Karen in 1940-something. Like, <laughs> yeah. But it was way worse. Yeah, the not that the police are on our side now, but definitely back then they were really, they had a lot more authority to do a lot more stuff back then. Let's also, let's also uh, just to give you a full round picture, we're talking about a lot of the areas in Los Angeles, East Los Angeles, Boyle Heights, the Chavez Ravine, let's also bring up the fact that you have an influx of naval and military people in Los Angeles waiting to be shipped out to war. And we had one not too far off. Um, I'm not exactly sure where exactly it's located. It was a naval from. auxiliary type of station for training purposes. What is now, it was the Chavez Ravine area. It sounded like it was off Figueroa near that Chavez Ravine area, like at the bottom area somewhere. There's a map of it in um, Professor Bagan's book, but I believe that's not no longer there because we tried to look for it and I didn't see anything. We did. We, you guys, we did an extensive investigation. Let's, we'll talk about that later, but we did. And we tried to find it. We couldn't find it, but let for, it's definitely a naval auxiliary thingamajig, like, like she just said. Probably a temporary pop-up type of thing during the war. But I definitely describe, okay, so this is the whole ambiance of LA during that time. The, the, the racial tensions, the war, the, you know, all this is going on. What led to the murder of Jose Diaz? And Jose Diaz lived with his family in the very rural part, which is now considered Bell slash Maywood, but back then it was unincorporated, like a rural part of Los Angeles. So he lived there with his family. And they were, his family was Mexican immigrants. And he was born in Mexico too. So li they lived in this area. And when I imagine the area personally, like I kind of wish I could see it. I wish I could be there. I, I Not be there for the bad thing that happened, but I just no. wish I could see it. Yeah, to see it like in its heyday and to see it with the, yeah. the culture, the music and the families and the liveliness. Yeah, and there's, I don't see any pictures of it. I haven't gone down deep, 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 but there's like hardly any photos of, that I seen of that area, but the families, it was about eight families that lived in this area, rural area near Bell, which is now Bell. I don't think the city was incorporated at the time. So, but it, it wasn't called Bell during that time. It was more the east, southeast part of LA. And there was about eight families living in bunk houses. So it sounds like maybe very modest, like plain yeah. 
one room house. And that's probably, yeah, and that's probably why we don't have too many pictures of the area. It probably was super insignificant in the grand scale of things. Yeah. Just, you know, a little farming area. Yeah, and all the families knew each other, and there was mostly Mexican immigrant families and a few, like, I think he said Italian or uh, Croatian or something, a couple Asian, maybe one or two. And they all were farming right there in the area, or they were working probably for whoever Williams was or whoever owned the land, they were working the land. And on the fateful day of August 1st, 1942. So what happened that day? Why, why was that day important? Um, I mean, we know he got murdered that day, but can you like paint the picture of that day? Say it one more time. There was a family called the Delgadillo family, and it was a family just like Jose Diaz. So Jose Diaz, and you, you could describe him more into detail when you talk about him. His family and this other family, the Delgadillo family, were celebrating one of the daughter's 20, 20th birthday party. So it, it, it sounded like it was a family with like several sisters, and they were going to have a traditional Mexican party with banda and food and... They invited about 30 families to come down, either from the area, the people they knew, to celebrate the party. And Jose Diaz, of course, because he lived there, he was invited. So tell us about Jose Diaz. Hey, Jose Diaz was described as uh, a nice young man. He was 22 years old. He, uh-huh. that Monday, this, this party was on a Saturday. That Monday, he was supposed to go look into enlisting or something to that effect uh because he's not from this country whatever he could do to join the war effort so he had that intention on monday so just a day later from this incident he was an older brother or the oldest brother i believe and just described as an overall good guy a good kid so i'm going to share the screen for people that are seeing visual jose diaz so this is him it should, I guess it's a good that we're silent for a second because he really deserves a little moment of silence in our respect because yeah. this, this big story as we progress about the Zoot Suit Riots, he's, this was the catalyst to the Zoot Suit Riots and he's never mentioned, not really. He's mentioned as the person who's murdered. He doesn't even really have a name in a lot of it. And this poor guy lost his life. He went to the party because he, it's the neighborhood, right? It's his, it's his neighbors and they, they were partying, um, drinking, eating good food. I'm sure I I would love to know what the menu was, but (laughs) (laughs) what happened was that everything, the the whole timeline of of events that led to all of this started about 11 o'clock and I could talk about, there was a group of, of boys called the Downey boys. Downey was a neighboring city. What they did was they they were they might have been invited, who knows? And they were at the party with the Gadios and every there again, there's like 30 families there, 30 different groups or whatever families. And they were getting really drunk and I guess they ran out of beer and got upset at the the Gadio family. So they were like pissed that there was no more beer and they're kind of being obnoxious and they're like getting mad and and they ended up getting kicked out of the party because they're just being rude about the fact that the, the beer ran out. So they got mad and they're talking kind of crap, like leaving, like, you know, because they got kicked out as they, you know, remember it's a rural area. So I'm sure there's dirt roads. There's probably a lot of like, uh, maybe like uh, greenery and things like that, that it's really dark and probably not a lot of good lighting. So 
they ended up leaving the party kind of pissed and that's when they go towards Sleepy Lagoon. So you want to describe Sleepy Lagoon. What is Sleepy Lagoon? Because that's obviously we hear that name. What does that mean? Sleepy Lagoon is an area, it was rural, as you so described earlier, just, you know, hills, grass. There was a reservoir that a lot of the Mexican kids or the probably the families that live around that area would be able to go and and, uh, cool off in because of segregation. They weren't allowed at the, the white pools. This was, again, just a rural area, dirt roads, greenery nothing very very back road kind of country if you will if you can imagine california being country-ish so that's kind of what sleepy lagoon looked like yeah and it was named after a a song that was popular at the time called sleepy lagoon so and it was also a makeout spot you know a spot to hang out and drink low-key and like be chill I, i think growing up we all had spots like that somewhere around town I never did. That was their spot. I never did. No, no kind of low-key, like, back spot that people went to. I mean... I was being sarcastic. <laughs> Imagine the, the Delgadillo party, the Downey boys get kick, kicked out. They go down the road, they pass Sleepy Lagoon, and they run into the next situation, which, you know, it's our next group of people from 38th Street, which, you know, they're all friends from 38th Street. You want to share about that yeah you want to share about Frank Leva what the after the Downey boys left but before that the 38th street kids were hanging out at Sleepy Lagoon you know at the same at the during the same time of the party yeah so um Hank Levis is a very described as a tall statuesque kind of guy with a big personality He's one of the 38th Street Boys. Uh, him and his girlfriend were necking, so making out in uh, Sleepy Lagoon, and I guess with friends next to them. Yeah, and they had two car loads. It was their own yeah. car and then another car. I don't remember that part. So, so as you said, there was a, two car loads. At some point, the Downey Boys or some boys descended on them. We're going to say the Downey Boys for argument's sake descended down on them and there was a scuffle and Hank Leva's and his girlfriend were, were beat up or accosted. And so Hank was very angry. He was a very proud young man. Yeah. Let me show a picture of the, of Frank to the audience. Okay. The ones that are going to see this on video, just so you could kind of get an idea of of how he, yeah, let's personalize this. Yeah. So here he goes. So yeah, he, he, he was what would be called, you know, kind of a significant character or person that, you know, was part of, became part of this whole situation. So go ahead. So he was known around where he lived. He was known as someone who was more outspoken when there was a crime that happened, the cops would automatically pick on, pick him when it was a very drab description of who may have committed the crime they would pick him up he was outspoken like I said he stuck up for himself which a lot of other kids didn't so he he was a very uh, dare I say rambunctious kind of guy and he got beat up and he wasn't taken too kindly to the fact that he was beat up so he talked to his, and his girlfriend Dora did too because she was trying to like block them from 
the downy boy is like kind of jumping him and she was trying to block it and she got hit in the meantime as well yeah and for his girlfriend's you know honor he gathered his 38th street friends and went back to the neighborhood yeah they did they went back to the neighborhood and they said hey we got beat up my girl got beat up and i'm paraphrasing obviously and they said let's go get them and they went back to that same area at the sleepy lagoon area and yes and why they went back because that's kind of where they figured they would find the downy boys right yeah since they were in that location in the first place near that location Mm-hmm. And so I guess a lot of is up for speculation because we don't know the play by play by play, but you hear the music and people are going to be there. So you go to the music and assume that, you know, you're going to find the people that beat you up. And that's right. when they pull up and they get out the car ready to uh, descend. This upon- was about 1130 ish too around that time. They descend upon the party and start wreaking havoc and beating people up. They notice uh, a young Jose Diaz on the on the ground and bleeding from his head. And his well, that was after like a big shallowly- kind of, you know. They fought a while and then they called the cops, but then during the whole thing, somehow he was found. But people are already yeah, scattering well, I- and running off. People were scattering and running off. Uh, and the documentary I was watching, they described it like when they got out, the girls immediately saw him at some point and the girls, because there were not just guys here from 38th Street Gang or 38th Street Boys or whatever you want to call them. There were also women there, young girls with them. They got out the car and at least from the documentary that I saw, it said that they saw him, Jose Diaz, and they started trying to attend to him because he was bloody and shallowly breathing. I think they ended up running off and left them there. And one of the 38 kicked kicked them or they did also try to hurt him still after because they didn't know he was like dead or nothing like that. Or he was dying, actually. And adrenaline. I said because of adrenaline, you know, you're just like, ah, I'm, you know, anyone who's ever been in a fight would understand. You kind of see red and they see another guy. So, yeah. Yeah. So. The cops then, ended up coming and, you know, obviously his family was informed where they, they ended up calling the paramedics or whatever it was at the time and took him to 45 minutes away to General Hospital. To where? General Hospital. <laughs> wait, wait, one more time. Where was General that? Hospital. See, that place is still there was still there it's it been was there looming over the city. years ago <laughs> but it's Lumi 45 minutes the away there's no freeways he could have been saved probably now but there's no freeways he got to the hospital 3 30 ish for and he they couldn't save him i guess he passed away about you said four in the morning right approximately four something in the morning yeah later. So that's very unfortunate. You know, he passed away at General Hospital, which is weird to think, right? In which way? Tell me. That that place is, you know, it touched so many parts of history. 
and how it keeps on coming up. I'm telling you all the different stories we're talking about, they're all interrelated and they're connected, which is hilarious because we didn't pick it like that. We just keep on picking interesting things that we're interested in. And they're just lead back to that. (laughs) It's paranormal. Yes, it does. It does all one way or another. They, and uh, he died and he, he obviously got killed. But they used his death as a catalyst for a whole slew of other things that happened next. Because prior to that, they didn't really care if a Mexican kid hurt another Mexican kid. It just wasn't significant. They didn't care. But this time they did. And it made it to what it, what it became of the whole Sleepy Lagoon murder trial and what's going to lead to the rest of it. And why, do you, why did that happen? It was politicized. It, an article mostly put out by the Hearst newspapers throughout yes. the country. People are reading about these delinquent Mexican kids in Los Angeles. And we already have so many problems abroad. Our men are gone, right? Our men are gone. We feel unsupported. We feel vulnerable. And we have these Mexican delinquents. When this happened, when this young Jose Diaz, 22-year-old, bright future ahead of him, when he was murdered, this just was perfect for them to perfect for the attorney general to say hey lapd snatch them up throw the book at them and lock the keys away yeah they 48 hours later they did a huge dragnet and gathered whoever looked mexican under 25 over 12 and arrested them if you just over 600 people boy or girl man woman they arrested you over 600 people and that's a whole ton so they were just going down the street looking for people um, in the film that you that you you shared. People were looking out their windows behind their curtains. People were afraid to go outside. They were told to stay inside because if you did go outside and get caught up, you're going to get arrested if you're Mexican. And they're scouting all the barrios and everything. So it was a really scary time for a lot of people and families. I mean, can you imagine? Like, think of just COVID. Think about not being able to go out of your house because of COVID and how isolated how isolated you felt but you have a car so imagine being like a family right there and for a couple of days not really being able to go out of your house for fear for your own children being snatched up by a cop I I can't imagine how scary that might have felt so throughout all this this happening the newspapers were sensationalizing everything and how she said William Randolph Hearst which was known for yellow journalism and you know he had his his newspaper here that was covering the area I forget what the name I can't think off the bat what the name of his newspaper is but he was pretty much demonizing these Mexican kids you know you know and it made things worse right because now there's everybody was getting angry at this situation and and the 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 kids and the youth so it just as we know uh yellow journalism or it just like any tabloid type of new sensationalized and makes it sound worse than it is definitely as it is or lies (laughs) right and as it is these kids were looked at as like unpatriotic because they're spending money on their their drapes their suits their zoot suits and you know fabrics being rationed describes a zoot suit because 
Wagan, that there's a whole history on the Zutsu. In LA, it was a particular type of way they wrote the, wore the Zutsu because Wagan was saying that the Zutsu in all the, the actual true Zutsu is very fancy, very expensive. And it yeah. comes from the African-American um, jazz culture. But in LA, they kind of modified it to what was affordable to the kids, right? Exactly. And these kids were working little odd jobs because of the war. There was more opportunity. So they had a couple of, you know, pennies in their pocket, if you will. And he describes them as drapes. And if you uh, are- Could you describe how a drape looks for people that don't know what that is? I think, and I was just coming from somewhere before this, and I was listening to the same- the same episode or the same documentary and i think sh- the gal who was the sister of uh the measurements of, you want me to see it yes that's what i was talking about the measurements it was like a 40 inch knee yeah and like a 12 or 11 11 or 12 10 inches inch at the cuff high-waisted at the cuff yeah and 40 inches high-waisted so very so they were ballooned so mc hammer pants yeah, pretty much and in a more uh, better, probably better quality fabric. And much better quality fabric. Kind of colorful designs. But yeah, the same kind of yeah. <laughs> The same kind of concept. It, it definitely stood out. They were definitely trying to make a statement. And in all my life, I like I said, I can really relate to them on so many different levels, just trying to find their identity and trying not to fit in but stand out. So they, because of their cockiness and the way that they dressed, it was just a recipe for disaster. And then you add in, you know, well, yes, yes. And anyone who looked like that or anyone who was Mexican, that was a boy and sometimes even girls were getting pulled in as well. They were really, uh, they didn't discriminate. They didn't really care if you had a criminal record. In their eyes. They, yes, the girls. And another way I can totally relate. Bad girls, dirty girls, girls with razors in their hair, girls that fight like guys. Yes. I can relate on some levels. So they they were, some were hauled in as well. Not as many as the men, but they were hauled in as well. Just to tie it all back in, they ended up arresting all these people, 600 um, youth. At the end of the day, 17 were you know, the ones that were going to be the standing this trial, 17 uh, boys or men and women, because they were not all minors, some were in their 20s. There were 17 total at the end defendants. They were being tried at the Hall of Justice, which is a whole Hall of Injustice, but that's a whole nother story. But that trial was very politicized, like you said earlier. There was a lot a lot of injustice happening during this trial for many reasons. There was right off the bat, um, Judge, I believe his name's Fricky. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not freaky, but Fricky. <laughs> he was a very, very pro, I would say, describe him as a pro, pro incarceration, pro throw the book at them kind of judge, no nonsense kind of judge. Uh, LAPD went and got all those kids, let go of the ones and kept the 16, 17, charged them. The judge would not allow them to get a haircut. The judge they would not allow dirty. them. They were dirty. They, they had to change all that time they were in jail. They didn't. And he said he wanted them to look like that because mm-hmm. it was pertinent to the case, which well, is- What does that know, make the jury look think, right? 
right off the bat, they're wearing these drapey, you know, pants and they look like vagabonds. Which was the opposite of the zoot suit style, which they love their clothes and they're proud of their clothes, right? They, so, he dehumanized them. Pretty much. He dehumanized them and he wouldn't allow the their public defenders, their defense team to talk to them privately. It wasn't long. The trial wasn't held long. And ultimately they were all charged. I think the group of the boys went to San Quentin. Some did time in county jail. Some did time in camps or like farms type of thing. But there was the group that did go to San Quentin. Hank got life in prison. Him and another boy got the most time life in prison. And then the girls even treated even worse without due process. So they weren't even involved in the trial. They didn't get due process. And some sent to uh, juvenile hall, but the most significant um, girl, Lorena Encinas, and I believe another girl were sent to California Youth Authority Ventura School for Girls until they aged out. They, no they didn't even get involved in the, the acquittal. They were just kind of tossed away. And I think that's really significant that we need to point that out. These girls yeah. were considered bad girls, throwaway girls. They were locked up and they weren't even heard of after the fact. Like they were just gone for a chunk of their years. And the, the reason they were treated more harshly was because they didn't want to cooperate or testify or they just refused to speak. And the judge or whoever just was like, okay, well, we're going to make it harder for you guys. Yep. Can you imagine? Discrimination. So Henry Leva and Jose Ruiz and Robert Dellis got life sentences. And then the rest had five years to life at San Quentin. And like I said, some in county jail and some in camp or county farms. So that's kind of like the majority of the sentences. And then I'll um, also share here with the audience that is watching a picture of, so this is a defendant here, like a good chunk of them. And this is during the, the trial. This is, these two are the Delgadillo sisters. So, I mean, they testified because obviously this whole incident happened at their house. Yeah, so, so sad. Yeah. This is while they were already in San Quentin. They had a boxing. But I, I like this picture, but also like um, some of their names so you could see who they are. And then here's another one where it has like all their names here. Um, the main ones that were involved. I could see Smiles, Henry Leva's right here. Uh, John Padilla. So yeah, so this is, they were still incarcerated during this time. So, or I think it was a photo either post-incarcerration or right before. So let's see. So th they got locked up, right? But then also during this time, the Los Angeles was- It started a snowball effect. How we were saying that while they were locked up, five months later, now this other event happens which was well, the precursor pretty much. The, the, the precursor was this, this murder case. But five months later, we get the Zutsu riots. We do. And how did we get there? I mean, we have that huge stressor, the, the death, the murder of Jose Diaz at Sleepy Lagoon, which was a huge precursor to Zutsu riots. But then we have to also remember we have these soldiers these soldiers, I mean, the, the Navy men, the, the sailors, God, we have these sailors mm -hmm. and they're stationed not far from these barrios 
And the way they get back to their naval base is through them from a night on the town. So they're going into these neighborhoods, these segregated Mexican And they're reading these headlines too, the newspaper headlines. And these naval men are from, these soldiers are from all over the United States. So they're not necessarily just from California. And you got to remember, Los Angeles was very diverse at that time, whereas Mm -hmm. let's say someone from Kentucky may not experience having dealing with Mexican people. And this is still, I mean, it's 2021 and it's still pretty racist here. Can you imagine what it was in 1942? So there was a lot of different little issues that had been going around even before Jose Diaz's murder. Let me interject really fast so we could also add the Japanese internment was also happening during this time. It was. So there's there's a lot of racism and patriotism and anti-foreigners, anti-immigrants, anti-people who don't look the same as me, even though in California during this time, not even a whole 100 years, was it oh, just a little over 100 years? No, not quite 100 years before the Zutsu riots, California was Mexico. So it, it, you just have to put things into perspective. The state of California became a state in 1850. So right. it, um, but back to the, the sailors. Uh, so what started the them walking through? Even though what, the, the sailors. No, we already know what caused the tension, but what kicked off the riot? Okay. So one fateful day in uh, 1942 or 1943, uh, June 3rd, 1943, sailors and young Mexican zoot suiters have a confrontation. A sailor goes back to his, his where there's a scuffle and fisticuffs were thrown and the sailor goes back to his naval base, for lack of a better term, and he's got a broken jaw. So this spurs outrage in his uh, counterparts and his sailors, his, his, his friends. So they come back. They come back to the same area in East Los Angeles and the Chavez Ravine area. And they, June 3rd, 1943, Sailors and some zoot suitors, some young Mexican. We're just talking shit to each other, pretty much. <laughs> there was a lot of that going. They, back. Yeah, they were. T- the whole time there had been, and it just had been getting worse since the murder of uh, Jose Diaz. Um, yes. uh, they had words. They exchange, exchanged words, and it ended up becoming a scuffle. And the sailor was taken back to his naval base with a girl a bro- somewhere by Legion Park off near the Chavez Ravine area and he was taken back with a broken jaw and his his sailors his counterparts were up in arms that you know these delinquents beat their their sailor friend so they grabbed their chains and other weapons that they could carry and went searching for zoot suitors and they wreaked havoc on the city they pulled out Mexican kids they pulled out anyone who looked Mexican and beat them. They stripped them naked and burned their their clothes. Cut off their different incidents. There's different incidents. But as she was saying, it 
at the end, the majority of the time, it came to them being stripped down to their underwear. Their clothes were put on fire. And some of them that had ducktails were cut off. Their hair was cut off. Yeah, and this well, happened. The was the type of hairstyle that they had, right? Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's a little hair in the back of, of the head, which was also um, a very, it was a, something that the Zoot Suiters also had. Yeah. So it just kicked off like pretty much five days all around the city of just rumbles and violence with from the sailors and the zoot shooters. It, I can't even imagine how that would be now. Like, I mean, it's, maybe like the Alec riots. Was, I mean, I, I it was know. most definitely a race riot. It was yeah. most definitely a race riot. At some point, civilians were coming in. Civilians were driving military personnel to different areas, all the way up to Watts, all the way to places that weren't even where these clashes were happening. Civilians and military people were clashing with not just at, at some point, you know, we're talking about five days in. At some point toward the very end, they're even, you know, fighting with Filipinos and with African Americans. Mm-hmm. And this is most definitely a war on race at this point. That just kept going for five days. It was it's finally finally kind of simmered down, but it it didn't really solve anything. They did never. There was no solution at the end to none of it. And they the, no. the sailors never took accountability at all. Of course they were never not. acute. They were never convicted of anything if they caused any harm at all. And they, they were looked at as to- heroes. Just to interject in that part, the cops would sit here and watch all this stuff happen. They would watch the zoot, the zoot suitors or Mexican people, whoever was targeted getting beat up. And once they were done being beaten up by the sailors and the, the civilians, they would swoop in and arrest these victims of being beat. Can you imagine that? You're beat and then you're arrested for being part of being beat. I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, well, it's I, I say I can't imagine, but we seen we see that with protests now, right? We go and protest, and the cops go and pepper spray you and stuff for for just going and holding a sign that says like "Don't hurt me," and they spray you in the face. It's it's ironic, but yet it's not. Finally, it ends. At least like the the fighting, not much was done except that they just the council banned zoot suits i mean pretty much blaming the fully the mexican kids you can't wear them and it became a law you can't wear them and what does that mean that means like we outlaw your identity we outlaw who you are trying to portray yourself as to the world you cannot be that person we don't allow you to be that person this happened June 3rd, which is next week, 78 years, lasted five days. And the, at the same time, the kids that were convicted in the Sleepy Lagoon, the young people convicted in the Sleepy Lagoon case had no idea this was going on. It was not really connected, but it was also intersected in in, in, in a way, right? But they didn't know what was going on while they were- Yeah, they had no idea. They were fighting their own battle. Many Hollywood- you know, stars and elites were getting defense for these young people 
because they knew that what had happened to them was unlawful and they um, petitioned the court. Um, they had, uh, so uh, a bunch of advocates got together to form a legal de defense team made up of, you know, attorneys, um, even communist uh, party at the time, Hollywood people, as she said, to appeal their conviction. So they worked hard to to do that. It's ironic because uh, Orson Welles was also part of that team to help them. And he played William Random Hurst in Citizen Kane. So that's a weird thing right there. <laughs> I thought it was weird. No, it's, uh, and Hurst follows me. What, like I was in Virginia City, which is neither here nor there. But it's, it's just like, again, it's all intersecting. And it's, so Orson Welles, it's, it's interesting how it's not the real Hurst was actually an advocate for the kids. So they ended up getting acquitted October, 1944. So this is way up, you know, shortly after the Zoot Suit riots, they, they ended up getting acquitted and they, came, they were set free from the Hall of Justice. Mind you, the girls were not, they had to age out till they were 21. They were not part of the acquittal process. I don't know really why that happened, but unfortunately they weren't. They got left behind, but the boys did get acquitted. It was reversed. And, you know, from there they had to live their lives, but unfortunately it, it took a lot of toll on them, on the young, the young men from, from that case. They, they ended up having difficulties after that. As any young person or any person would, do you imagine the PTSD? imagine your your like just think about where you live at the moment anyone who's listening right now think about where you live think about that neighborhood being being uh invaded by your own soldiers and you can't go outside because if you do they're gonna beat you you have to live with that for the rest of your life so imagine the young kids like we're talking about two three four year olds imagine what their recollection of this was because they're the next generation coming up. Yeah. And Hank had a hard time after that, you know, he couldn't find a job and different things. He ended up getting in trouble and going back to prison just pretty much because of his record and everything like that. Same thing with some of the other boys. And I would like, we were saying at one time, you know, during that time that there was just no resources for, for Mexican American youth. There's not real true mental health resources. There's none of that. So they kind of just got thrown out and tried to mend their lives back again. Obviously it impacted them. They kind of weren't, weren't the same after that. They all kind of had some challenges, you know, from what, what some of the research says. But it makes sense for that time that there just was not a much going on opportunities for Mexican-American youth probably even to get fully educated. I don't know. There's just not what, there's not much there for them. That, that sadly, you know, caused them to kind of have a revolving door in justice system. In a nutshell, that's kind of what happened with this Liga Lagoon murder, which led to the Zutsu riots. Yes. Zutsu riots, there's movies about it. There are songs written about it. But you don't really never you don't really ever hear the history about it. I didn't hear about it growing up, going into primary school or high school age. I don't remember hearing anything about it. And it's really important that we make sure we highlight it and we take these stories and we lift them up because it's our history. Like our history is not just what's in that history book that that they slap in front of you. 
where it talks about, you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and the missions in California. There's so much more. Just to also maybe the question is who killed Jose Diaz and it's a cold case. There was nobody ever got convicted of that. And again, they didn't even really bring him up in the trial as much, or he, again, he was just used as a scapegoat to vilify these Mexican-American youth. So it was just a cold case at the end. Nothing was ever revealed of who might've done it. There is one theory that came out in the film and also written in the book, but there's also several theories that might've, that might've not been true, who knows. Lorena Encinas, one of the young ladies that was refusing to cooperate, I guess, on her deathbed in 1991 or something like that, confessed to her kids that her her brother did it. Yeah, her brother. I think his name was Louis. Yeah, I think so. It was either Louis or Luis, one or the other. Yeah, that he killed Jose Diaz. Uh, I guess he was kind of hanging out with the Downey boys at the time. It, it was never proven. Um, the time frames of when he could have been there, or could have not been there, were not ever connected. We'll never know if that was ever a true thing or not, or if there's somebody else involved. That's why they consider it a cold case. He ended up committing suicide anyway, or he, he, he had a hard life himself. I don't know what he went through, but if it was because of that, maybe he, there was he he was going through his own mental turmoil. So he ended up, you know, committing suicide. Um, Lorena died of an illness as well in 91. So and unfortunately, a lot of the kids um, had a hard time. You know, I, I can't say for every single one because I'm sure others moved on, but some of the main people that we heard um, had some challenges. Yeah, so that that's pretty much the story of both the Sleepy Lagoon and Dutsu Riot. So how I came, to our memory now was kind of not on purpose. I guess it just kind of came out of some coincidences that happened. <laughs> it certainly did, um, very unexpectedly and very quickly. What happened was that we were finding a film location, right, for American Me. Exactly, that's where yeah, it all that's, If you're born and raised in LA, you probably know American Me. If you're a little bit older, 1992, American Me, Edward James Olmos film about you know the prison gangs. Anyway, I wanted to see the apartments of where they filmed this because to me they were very significant. The style, like that Mexican party where they're like all dancing and you know, the traditional party in the middle of the neighborhood. It just reminded me of childhood, things like that. So, and I didn't remember, it's not that I had the apartments in mind at all. It came to me like, okay, oh yeah, what happened was that I, the movie was on Netflix. So I watched the movie and I remember, you know, I seen the apartments again, like, oh, I remember always in the back of my mind, liking to see the background of these apartments. So I did some research, I found where they were at, we decided to go visit them in Boyle Heights and they look exactly the same, maybe a little bit more rustic. <laughs> Just a little. Yeah, that kind of started this whole like kind of- Conversation, the conversation of- What led to this, right? Exactly. How did you see these apartments for yourself? Well, when you said I was like, of course, I mean, American me is a staple and a young- 
Mexican person, young Mexican person in the nineties life. Right. I was, what year did it come out? 93, 92, 92. So I would have been, I don't want to say how old I don't want to tell you guys, but I was young and it was a very, it was an important movie to me for many reasons. We saw the, 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 uh, not the hotels, the apartments, and they look just like they do on the movie. And what it did, and I posted the, the apartments onto my social media, like a little video. I, I posted it with the song. I posted it with slipping into darkness. And of course, if you've seen the movie, it's a very, or I, I posted it with rock and Robin. Robin. Rock and Robin. I apologize, everyone. Rock and Robin. And there's a, a pivotal moment in that in the movie with that song. And it was very nostalgic to me. And so when we left, I was feeling a way that I hadn't felt in a very long time. Uh, we talked about it the whole drive home and a couple other things we well, did. We went to the mausoleum after also on the scene. We did. Which yes, the, the nostalgia. We did. And if you guys don't know anything about us, we like to do investigative work in person. So anything that we talk about, we've been there, we've been around inside somewhere. So we like to get the real feeling. And because of those two locations, I was filled with nostalgia from my childhood. And this movie was too, right. Oh, <laughs> we literally bought tickets to a concert to I go see Los Lobos. Day, right? That same day. <laughs> We went to, we got tickets to see uh, Los Lobos and who else is the- Los Lobos uh, played a soundtrack in American Me, Shotgun. And they did, Shotgun and they, yeah, Shotgun. And the Lakesiders. So it kind of all connected in a weird way. It did. And if you see us, I don't know how you judge us on how we look or if you see our content. So you probably don't know anything about our childhood. But when I think of that movie, American Me, it's something that kind of feels in a weird way like family. So my father, uh, my family's not originally that far back in Los Angeles to the Zoot Suit Riots, my Mexican side. I am of mixed race, Northern, uh, Western, Euro- or Western European uh, descent. And then also I'm Mexican and Native American. My family, my Mexican and Native American family came from New Mexico. So during that time of the Zoot Suit Riots, we were in New Mexico. We had been in New Mexico for a millennia. We've been there for forever. My grandparents migrated over here or came to California like in the late 40s. So they missed that time. And my dad was born over here in California. During his childhood experience, and I didn't get to know my dad well, and I wish I could have asked him these questions now because they're so important to me now, but he he was, you know, a homeboy. He was uh, uh, I don't know if they would have called him Macholo back in like the seventies back then, mm-hmm. but he was still of that. He was a gang member who was in and out of prison my entire life before he succumbed to his drug habit and died of an overdose when I was about 10. When I see him and when I think about him and it's very I can relate to, I can relate him to American me, like not saying that he, you know, was all mafia up or anything like that, but just the whole prison culture, the whole 70s, 60s culture. And I had a pivotal moment where I thought, man, like that Pachuco culture, 
that Portugal culture from the Zoot Suit Riots, it never really subsided. It just kind of turned into something else. And in the and, movie, they show the scene of that, the Zoot Suit yeah. Riots. The yeah, scene, the, right? main, the, the main character, his parents are a part of the Zoot Suit Riots, are victims of, of the Zoot Suit Riots. So it, it all into it all connects to each other. And seeing this, I felt really, well, American Me got me all like inspired and obsessed. And I wanted to discuss more of American Me. And then next thing you know, the next week, the teacher has me, or not just me, but has an assignment out for. So what class um, are you taking that this, this assignment within? Sociology. Okay. And um, it, I have an essay I have to write about the suit suit rights. Hence the little documentary where I'm supposed to watch and then you know do an essay based on my opinion and the criteria that my professor professor Lopez hi again asked and um after doing it a lot of things clicked because again we know about the Zoot Suit Riots but you don't really hear about the Sleepy Lagoon murder so a lot of things clicked and I was obsessed and I told you like oh my god we have to do one on the Zoot Suit Riots and you're like yeah we have to especially the timing like it's right before the Zoot Suit Riots uh, anniversary. I just relate to those young Zoot Suiters or kiddos wearing drapes back then because because of my mixed heritage, I was never white enough to be white and I'm definitely not Mexican enough to be Mexican. Don't speak Spanish or I can understand a little bit, but I don't speak it. Trying to identify with, with something and trying to be a part of and never feeling a part of either culture, feeling this really big disconnect. And because of my lifestyle, my father, in, you know, dying at a young age, I never really got to know him like how I wish I could have known him. You know, I end up making choices. My kid's father's from the same, you know, neighborhood that my dad's from. My kid's dad's from there. Um, I followed his footsteps. I lived a similar life in a sense. I mean, I wasn't incarcerated, thank goodness. And the, the thing is, and the why it was such a big deal to me and why I was so obsessed is because who I am now is definitely not who I was back then. And I almost kind of like push it. I've pushed it so far away because I did not want to end up in the same kind of lifestyle or mm -hmm. stuck where a lot of people that I know that are my age or a little bit older during my generation some people are still stuck. They never really evolved. They still have the same hairstyle. They still wear the same clothes back in the 90s. They didn't evolve and go on to bigger and better things for different reasons. Each person's different. I didn't want that for my life. And also I had a bunch of young kids. I didn't want that for their life either. So I pushed that lifestyle back or who I was. And I don't want to say lifestyle because it really was who I was in that young age that's where I came from that's who my dad was that's you know kind of like a core of who I was for many years uh -huh. but I don't identify as that as that anymore because I'm so much more than just one thing but I, I don't think I until just recently realized that I can still acknowledge that and it doesn't take away from who I am now which is completely different I'm so I'm all over the place I have so many interests and so forth and wear many different um titles and do di different things but it was like coming to terms with my young years teenage years my father and this culture that I pushed away for so long and I was able to embrace it and really process 
what it is and what I was going through and be proud of what it is. Not everything. I mean, you know, we can't be proud of, of murders and a whole lot of the culture, but we have to see where the culture led us, like where it came from and how we got to where we are today. And it all goes down to um, racism, the segregation. It, it, a lot of it's never stopped. A lot of the things that the young Zoot Suiters went through, it, it's, it's the same thing it is today. And, or maybe not today, but when in the 90s, when we were going through it, we, there's a lot of socioeconomic things that we still deal with back then. And now I'm rambling. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, back in the 90s, there was all the era of tough on crime laws because of, you know, the gangs. So it just kind of never went away. It just caught categorized differently or just stated differently. But yeah, so that whole scenario kind of came full circle for her and and us and we decided to explore more of Sleepy Lagoon. We went to the area where it actually happened. It's completely erased. There is nothing there at all that would tell you that this was a rural Los Angeles County area. It's all industrial no. modern buildings. I didn't realize how sad I was going to be about that until after like just a couple days just a couple days ago like in fact Fridays when I really felt the the weight of the fact that that place is completely industrial it's nothing but warehouses and companies that whole history is completely erased yes but I do have to give a shout out to the city of Bell because the mayor and one of the council people there are working on getting a monument in the city of Maidwood at the park to remember Sleepy Lagoon and everything that happened there. So they're still working on that. I've been, they've been doing that for a few years. It's just funding issues, but the same reason like that we think it's, it was just erased. Like they wanted to um, remember that by having some kind of statue or monument in that area. So hopefully they do get to do that. And if there's a way that we could help, we probably will. And we'll let everybody know. See Definitely. Updates on that. Yeah, the area is completely erased. It, does, it didn't feel like anything really would have happened there like that at all. Yeah, it's hard to imagine civilized it like a, a rural town, like not a town, but like a, a homestead. It's hard to imagine people living there because all you see is like train tracks and vehicles and industrial and street and pavement and freeway. You see nothing. And all the other areas we went to visit too. I mean, Main Street, pretty much all brand new. I mean, modern, excuse me. We went to Elysian Park, which does have a little bit of energy. We went to that one stump area, the camping area was yeah. kind of odd. It was, there was something different there. It was something definitely non-human presence and maybe past spirits there. But one thing really beautiful is we did go visit um, Jose Diaz's grave and he is buried at Calvary Cemetery in East LA off Whittier Boulevard in Downey and we found his grave and I thought it would be nice to you know visit him give him flowers spend a little time just remembering him. How did you feel about visiting him? It was really nice. I, I was super, I don't want to say pumped. I know you guys are like pumped. I love cemeteries. 
I'm a topophile. I could stay in cemeteries all day long for picnics, for dinners, sleep. I've slept in cemeteries and I've done other things in cemeteries and we'll leave it at that. But I was pumped to go visit Jose Diaz. I was super pumped. And when we got there and we sat down next to his um, headstone and we had a conversation with him and with each other, yes, we had a conversation with him. I felt really sad. I don't know if it's the fact that I have children his age or that a whole a whole riot was spurred due to his murder <clears throat> and he was politi- politicized and he never really got his, his what he deserved he never got any kind of no one got closure for him and it's all forgotten he's forgotten we told him we'd go visit him um you know maybe on his uh, date of death which is in august we'll see yeah. but i felt really sad I felt, I didn't feel really sad. Like I'm, I'm so sad, but it felt sad. It felt sad. How did you feel? Yeah, it was, I mean, like all places, cemeteries, I mean, it it does bring a peaceful feeling. It's never been like scary or anything to me. So it was nice. And it was nice that we were able to remember him, you know, share some, that's some time because yes, he, he was definitely forgotten and he, even though it was a murder and he died, it, they didn't really care about that. It was just for other reasons, like she said, and and that's sad. And the family never got justice or nothing, you know. So, I mean, it, it was cool that he he's were able to visit and now you know remember him. And we'll we'll add a photo of the everything later on in the video and on our Instagram, you know, of what it looks like if you like to go visit. So yeah, that that was nice being able to go to the sites, even though it's not the same for many of these places anymore, but just being able to remember it and know that something happened is important. It's really, it's really important when we talk about these histories, when you want to see it from your perspective, you have to see where it came from, like where exactly this happened at. And then you kind of humanize the story. A lot of this history is just, you know, words in a book or in a documentary or wherever you're getting the information from. But when you go walk into someone's history and you see it, it's a whole different feeling. Yeah. So it was really good to get on top of there of um, of the Chavez Ravine or Dodger Stadium. And that's a whole nother story within itself about the atrocity there. But it was a good idea because I've never seen it the way that I saw it on Friday where we looked at basically where the houses would have been, where people would, how people would get to and from and to what distance it is to Los Angeles, like downtown Los Angeles. So seeing it from that perspective was really important for me. And it's crazy to think that people lived in like a little ravine like that or canyon I would die walking up and down those hills but it really puts things into perspective how you could see where the sailors would be going into their 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 barrios and going into downtown LA and coming back that was important and it was really important to see Jose Diaz we did go to 77th precinct as well yeah that was another uh, the where they, when they got arrested they were sent there for the most part so I mean, uh, before we wrap it up, there is going to be an event next Saturday for the Zoot Suit Riot anniversary, 78-year anniversary, and it's thrown by Zoot Suit Riot Cruise, 
You can find them on Instagram. Um, they're organizing an actual day cruise that um, you could, if you have a classic car, like a bomb or anything like that, they they want, you know, they're gonna do a cruise in, in memory of the, the riots. So, um, and now they're gonna meet at the end at Lincoln Park. So I think that's definitely important to do that. And um, thank you for listening to this special episode on Sleepy Lagoon and the Zitsu riots. We look forward to sharing more history on future podcasts. If you'd like to follow me, follow me, Doña Junta, on Instagram under swapme underscore chronicles, and you can follow Sabrina at Observing Spooks and Other Vices. Also, the podcast has a Instagram page at Beyond the Facade Podcast right there on Instagram to keep updated. Thank you. Have a good day.